in my attempt to not get paid, but you know, to promote somewhat decent cinema, I've started an experiment with a friend of mine at work called Benflix. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna give him like one movie by each director that I have and just let him see, and he's gonna rate it out of five, and we're gonna expand from there. So I'm just gonna give you a director, and I'd like to know which movie of the take. Let me just see how we sync up. Okay, straight from the hip. Yeah, straight from the hip. Affleck. Ben Affleck? Yes. The town. Okay. Wes Anderson. Bottle Rocket. Okay. Mm, one for two. Darren Aronofsky. Pie, because I'm a sadist. Or mother, because I'm also a sadist. Jesus. One for three. Bong Joon Ho. Probably Parasite. Uh, one for four. Danny Boyle. Oh, uh, ugh. Sunshine? Sunshine? No. Uh, yeah. One for five. Eddie and the Cruisers 2. They made a second Eddie and the Cruisers movie. Mel Brooks. Why did High Anxiety was... Why was that the first one that popped in my head? Not High Anxiety. I would not pick High Anxiety. That's, that's a great movie, though. It's very fun. For Brooks, I think it's oh, yeah. uh, Blazing Saddles. I don't think it's High Anxiety. That's fair. That's fair. Carpenter. One from Carpenter? Yeah. Uh, they Live? No... Guess the thing? I don't know. One for seven. You're not going to pick the thing? No, no, I went a different way. I went a different what way. What did you pick? Oh, Prince of Darkness. <laughs> Fuck off. I was going to pick Prince of Darkness, but I was like, that's too, that's too difficult to give someone. No, no, I want to challenge him. Plus the oh. thing I have on Blu-ray, I couldn't rip a copy for him. So, you know. Nice thing how it is. Burton. Burton. Oh, Tim Burton. Edward Scissorhands. Actually, and also, not only Edward Scissorhands, but also the porn parody Edward Penis Hands. Fair. James Cameron. I mean, fucking Terminator, dude. Come on. Oh, he's seen Terminator that? already. Keep oh, he's seen mind. Terminator? Yeah, uh, that was the well, first movie then, I gave him. And he was like, he goes, uh, this is nuts. I was like, okay, you want more? Avatar. Oh, I went True Lies. <laughs> You get the heat, then you get the fucking change up. And see, Clooney. <laughs> Look, he was next in the collection. What do you want? <laughs> Can I give him a blank disc? No, you may not. Did he do good night, good luck? He did. Okay, well then, good night, good luck. Look at us, two for eight. We're getting there. Yeah, Shane Black. It's movies he directed? Yeah, just movies he directed. Okay, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Yeah, okay. Well, we're three for nine. Coen Brothers. Oh, now... Uh, oh, brother, oh, brother, where are that? <laughs> three for ten. I went Miller's Crossing. Michael Bay. Oh, Baby Boy. That's that's a John Singleton movie. No, that's what I'm calling Michael Bay. Thank you. Oh, oh From you're this calling point him forward. Baby Boy. From this point forth, it's Baby Boy. <laughs> Is that B-A-Y-B-E-B-O-Y? Yes. <laughs> Or is it um, lowercase b-a-y, capital B, lowercase b-o-y? Either way, baby. Okay, fair enough. What would Baby Boy get? Baby Boy, my heart, I think, is the rock. I think my brain says, what is it, bad boys? And then I think my dumbass part of me is like a fucking uh, Armageddon. <laughs> he had seen <laughs> all yeah. three of those, I believe, so I gave him the island. Ooh, the island. The movie he got sued for. 
I mean, the island the island is a rough hang at moments, but it also kind of weirdly works. It has an interesting plot that was stolen from a, a different, weirder movie. Yeah, that's very true. So I went with the island, give you the rest of them, and then we'll all ask him the final one, and I hope he understands the comedy gene where we're going with this. We had, for me, for Wes Anderson, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. We had Requiem for a Dream for Darren Aronofsky. We had... I went with Memories of Murder for Bong Joon-ho. I went with Train Spotting for Danny Boyle. I went with The Producers for Mel Brooks. I went with Ed Wood for Tim Burton. I went with True Lies for James Cameron. I went with Prince of Darkness for John Carpenter. Good Night and Good Luck for George Clooney. And Kiss Kiss Bang Bang for Shane Black. Now, most importantly, I bring it to this final question. What would you pick for Paul Thomas Anderson? Oh, for Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah, for Paul Thomas Anderson. I would pick Soldier, I, I think would be the one I picked. I'd pick or Event Horizon. That's that's Paul W.S. Anderson. Oh, oh, okay. Someone that made Darjeeling Limited, right? You know that's Wes Anderson. We just talked about him. Oh, God. Who's Paul? Who's Paul Anderson? Uh, well, I was going to try to leave this in with a hint, hint, winky, winky, but... It went better than I thought. I thought you were just going to get really aggressive and go, you'd like to fucking know who Paul Thomas Anderson's favorite is, <laughs> wouldn't you? So I guess, hint, hint, winky, winky, but like... Oh, is he the is he the hard eight guy? Yeah, he's the hard eight guy. Yes. Oh, well, I gotta go with hard eight, because that's the only movie I've seen from him. Son of a bitch, you know that's not true. Let me in. What are you thinking? <laughs> My favorite thing about that joke is we did another movie. <laughs> I know, it's true. Recently. Very recently. End of your movie. Now you want more. Now you want more. all your insides Welcome, everybody, to TWGTF, or as everybody knows it, from Tehran to the plains and the open roads of Texas. This is Two White Guys Talking Film. I'm, of course, your host, Ben. And I'm Tyler. <sighs> Movies and cars. Mm. Hey, man, you picked these. I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I, I... You could have picked... <laughs> You picked you picked some fucking Tyler Bate right here. I don't know. No, I picked one of them was Tyler Bate. One of them. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, baby. Oh, I I cinematically threw up. <laughs> I don't know how better to put it. Not to spoil what's gonna happen, but oh. man, maybe this is gonna be like Okada and the other guy in the fucking Tokyo. You know his name. You say it. You say his name. He's the goddamn triple champion. You say it now. <laughs> I just love calling him the other guy. I know. It's your favorite gimmick. <laughs> Won't allow it. Man is saving wrestling. The point being is, before we get to these two movies that are some car rides, and boy, one feels like a very long car ride. One is a, one is a very long car ride. It's great. It's like an A+. Plus. <laughs> no, it's not. Don't you fucking... No notes. <laughs> don't, you, don't you fucking dare. Don't you dare fucking step on my lead. Let's go to the <laughs> best thing you saw this week. Let's Let's just do it now.
You know, sure. I feel like recently I keep forgetting that we did this best thing that we watched this week, and I'm just having Ben start because I forgot to write something down before I went in here. Complicated, it actually ties into the opening bit we did there. The best thing I saw this week was a little movie called There Will Be Blood. Mm-hmm. Was there I blood? Mean, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll say it, man. It's a two-hour build to pay off the title, but man, do they pay it off. Like, it's amazing to think that maybe two of the best movies of the decade came out the same year like and that's just like that's just amazing to think about like that in the same year like two game-changing movies in terms of the way we look at cinema the way we view and express like thoughts of acting and like what we want to say with a story like changed in that year like i don't Mm. know how better to put it like it's the best daniel day lewis performance i've ever seen like i rewatched it and i there are moments i've completely spaced on in this movie that are just haunting i don't know how better to put it it's a five there what i think is so interesting about there will be blood is it is definitely a movie where the book that they based it off of the name for the book is significantly worse than the one they changed it it's just oil oil exclamation point i mean we we don't we don't have to go into this right now i mean it's 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 really good i mean you know what there it is hint hint winky winky Hint, hint, winky, winky. Yeah, um, like... I do not. Although next week I might, because I did rent a very long movie called... Sh- that rhymes with Schmackschmolia that I have to watch soon. Uh, I'll so watch it Monday night. Oh, man, is that a is that a movie? It's, it references Reno, like, out the gate, so I'm very interested. Not just that, um, we also get a great fucking comedian. That's true, that's true. I think that um, there's a piece of it shot in Reno, if I'm not mistaken. I think like it's in the I think pepper so. Mill. Yeah, I think, I think there's the like, a, like a yeah. I think there's a, there's uh, it's been a while. Anyway, what about you? Best uh, so I watched I watched a little movie that we're probably gonna talk about at the end of the year. I watched a little movie called The Killing of Two Lovers. It is a small little indie film directed. It's the first feature from a man named Robert McQueen. And it is in a Utah-based slow burn psychological thriller about um, the separation that maybe is turning violent and turning uh, like war of words. It's very good, very slow, beautifully shot. And it reminded me of home in a way that is still lingering with me. And it's really good. So uh, people should watch it. It's currently on VOD through Neon. In some places it is in theaters. If you're able to go and don't feel like you're gonna die, then go, I guess. Shrug. (laughs) But yeah, it's a good movie. What do you like about this exactly? What makes this movie work for uh, you? Um, I mean, like, it what? Great. It's it does the Tyler Bate thing of being like very slow, very long, deliberate shots. But like, there's this tension in the film from like the opening shot. So you're just like, oh fuck! Like, are we gonna get to where the opening shot insinuates we're gonna get to? Like, and plus the name. I mean, the name's really evocative. It's the killing of two lovers. Like, you you feel like there's this clicking, this like ticking clock element to the film, and then like the whole thing is just like very slow and ratcheting, and you think there's going to be this burst of violence, and you're just like expecting it to come this entire movie. So it's like it's just like a really well made thriller. Speaking of which, there's a movie that we're going to be doing, that we're going to talk about, that has a very similar setup. 
So you would recommend The Killing of Two Lovers? Yeah, I would recommend it. Interesting. Well, it sounds like I'm going to have to watch it at some point. So I'm sure in a couple months, ladies and gentlemen, you'll hear me be like, oh, yeah, The Taste of Lovers. Or potentially what you're going to hear about another movie coming up. No, not The Taste of Lovers. Not you. Not you. <laughs> you picked it. I don't yeah, yeah, I had faith in you. This is that. You this, yourself. this is that moment in Arrested Development where George Senior is talking to Michael, and he says, "He goes, Michael, we can't prove that this woman you're talking about is having your baby." He goes, "A lot of people would say things just to make sure a child lived." He goes, "Like some waitress at a at a Shoney's, like Lucille just walks by him with a drinker, and she goes, it was a Stuckey's.'" And he goes, "But I believed you, <laughs> like." That's what this is right now. I'm, I don't believe you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't. It won a palm door. I don't know what you want. I will. I will stop it right now. I will pull this podcast. Get in the car. I will pull this podcast over as soon as you get in the car so I can pull it over. I have a license to drive this podcast. I might not have a license for other things, but I have a license to drive this podcast. Let's let's just let's just tap on the gas and let's get going. And let me tell you about our first movie. Because our first movie is a deeply emotional and yet unsatisfying journey of a man looking for help and maybe so much, much more. Kurosami gives you all the ingredients for a full experience, but you never feel like you're getting the benefits of the complete story, which may or may not be intentional, as I'm not 100% sure of what I watched in the hour and 39 minutes that this movie was on screen. This is, of course, the 1997 movie from Abbas Kurosami. And maybe the most perplexing one yet out of the three we've seen, which was certified copy and last week's like someone in love. This is the 1997 movie that won the Palm Door and Roger Ebert hated. And I got to say, Raj, we're, we're on the same page, buddy. Load up them double barrels and take aim at the taste of cherry.
آقا آقا باش این ماشین رو دوارده آقا بس اینجا کار کنه آقا چی ده بیا اینجا ماشین رو دوارده این دوارده بس اینجا کار کنه اینجا برای چی نشسته اینجا کار نشسته نیچه مرزی باش این ماشین رو دوارده اینجا دوارده بس کار کنه اینجا جای خواهم نیست دیگه خوشه باش اینجا ماشین دوارده آز خواهدش ناچی بخواهد رو دفتر و اینجا هست آقا مرزی Honestly, I think I doubled down on Kurosami. I think this is slightly my fault, honestly. I think yeah. if I had taken off like a year and a half like the last time, when we had done <laughs> with Jerry in a year and a half, I'd be like, this was fun. I like this. This is a good movie. Yeah. But it was just it was just another aimless wandering. And I was like, nope, not this one. This is too much. <laughs> oh, I gotta say, up top, I love an aimless wandering. Great. <laughs> Good. In a in a movie, and I think in a yeah. movie format, I will really enjoy an aimless wandering. In a book format, I think I would go insane. But like, <laughs> like in a, in a movie format, I'm like, eh, this is fun. This guy's driving around. He's like metaphorically wandering while actually wandering. It's nice. It's cool. I like it. Uh, well, guess we can get in, into that. Yeah. So, Abbas Kurosami's <laughs> The Taste of Cherry. This is about a man who is driving around and is trying to find someone to bury him in a hole. He doesn't want them to kill him, right? No, he does not. He is, it actually takes us like thirty minutes to figure out what the what in the goddamn is hell. They set going that on. up really well. I will give them it's that. I think the wonderful. setup of this movie is great. I just don't think it lands for me in the other half. I, you know what? I took notes. <laughs> Are you ready for the TTOCN? Yeah, I'm ready to fight back. <laughs> the taste of cherry notes. <laughs> so you have the main character who's played and I'm, I feel I apologize to everybody in this movie whose name I'm going to horribly butcher a bu- butcher a bunch of white girls names in the next movie just to make it equal hell yeah that's 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 where equal opportunity uh Thank mispronounced you, right yeah Homeyun Urasadi I think that's how you say it Urasadi I hope he is the man who is driving around a Tehran, who is middle-aged, and he's looking. He's offering people to do a job. He says the money will pay really well. It'll pay pretty much like, I think at one point he says like six months of what like laboring would do. He really leads up. He's like, you know, it's 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 you know, it's an easy job. It only pays this much. Like, it'll pay a lot. So like, you know, you just kind of gotta do it. And then when he tells people what he wants to do, they're just like, no. <laughs> No, no, no. And it takes a really long time to build to it, but finally, like 30 minutes into the movie, after all of this driving, all this talking, he finally tells someone, he's like, I want you to bury me after I kill myself. And everybody's pretty much not chill with that. Why does Uh, he want to kill himself? We don't know. He just has sad eyes. Oh, does he ever? I'll say this, the first person he picks up, which is this young boy who's going off to be a soldier, is so naturalistic, it's almost disorienting to me. 
Yes. So I think what what you need to know about this movie specifically is everybody in it is not. No, 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 no. Don't do this for them. Don't do this for them again. If you weren't listening last week, ladies and gentlemen, we're not going to break this down for you again. His movies feel like uncomfortable portraits of things you shouldn't be seeing. Like, say what you will. This guy low key kind of really does work with a Bergman movie because Bergman does the exact same thing. Like what Kurosami brings to these movies is the ability to give you like a snapshot of someone who you wouldn't see in your everyday life, but you're like kind of getting like almost just this like 48 hour intimate look at them. Cause all three of these movies, I think kind of follow the same spectrum. Pretty much. And the movies don't have like a traditional act structure. <laughs> they have more of like a scene structure where it's like this scene, it's like kind of like a play. Like it moves from scene to scene to scene. Mm-hmm. There's no real act breaks. It just kind of flows into one another. And I love that. I think that's incredible. And I would literally watch any one of his movies because they simultaneously are so engrossing and also um, feel like a movie I can fall asleep in and not miss anything. <laughs> that's That's the other like, problem I had with this movie is I was in and out of paying attention to it like... I, I'm sure I could pay attention to this a little better. I'll admit, like, I was on my phone at one point or another, but it was just like, it's just, it's so disorienting. Like, I don't know. Ben, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you this. First time I watched it, I don't think I liked it that much. I really, like, bounced off of it the first time I watched it. Maybe we somehow bring this back, like, in January next year and we do a, we do a give it another shot. Maybe. Yeah. Cause, but at cause the same like time, you... I don't hate all aspects of this. I think it's incredibly well filmed considering this movie looks like it might have been made for we have a camera and the amount of film we have on that camera is the amount of film we have. Because <laughs> that's what it feels it, like. So the movie. This I is on HBO the... Max, by the way, ladies and it gentlemen. Is? It, it's also probably that beautiful new Criterion edition of it. Yeah, that's exactly all restored and nice. I originally watched what was on the Criterion channel back when it launched. Like this was one of the first movies I watched because I was watching a bunch of the this is uh, like the film class cinema stuff that they were doing. And one of the episodes was about like Kurosami and motion, and it was about where is my friend's house, which is a great little cute little film. That I think, Ben, you would probably get a kick out of because it's about like a kid trying to get his homework to a friend. Late 80s Iran. I think you'd find it kind of funny. It's kind of cute. Oh, wait a minute, um, you son of a bitch. You were going to recommend this for feel-good movies next week, weren't you? You were going to no. just try to make this an all Kurosami cast before it turns I, out next week was nine. Oh, I see right through you and your here's, Kurosami Here's the lines. thing. It's not really a feel-good movie. It kind of leaves you ambiguous. <laughs> you son of a it's bitch. Cute. It's cute. <laughs> Here's some cute ambiguity. Wait, that doesn't make sense. It's Where's really cute. It's like this like eight-year-old kid who's like trying to get homework to his friend because his friend will get kicked out of class like if he doesn't get his homework done. Like and it's like really cute. And he's like running across town and he's like, Do you know where my friend lives? It's very it's very sweet. It's a very speaking, sweet little movie. Speaking of humorous moments, when he finally explains to this young soldier what he wants. And then he goes and gets in the car and the young soldier just takes off running. You're just like, fair. Can't That's really dispute right. it. Yeah. My favorite thing about that is he spends the entire time telling him he's going to get him back to the barracks in time. And then he like turns a corner and he sees, he sees like other soldiers like running up the hill. So he like very clearly was not going to get him back to that barracks in time. I don't know why that made me chuckle. Honestly, Which he pitches guy? it better to the second guy he picks up after the soldier. The second guy is the guy who's, like, studying to be a a seminary. Yes. He's, like, a religious guy. And, like, he pitches it pretty well. He's like, I just kind of want to (laughs) die. 
<laughs> and the guy from the seminary is like, I, you know, pretty much am not allowed to do that. Like, religiously, I have an objection to suicide. Before that, he, like, is talking to this, like, other dude who, like, runs, like, a gate. And, like, they have, like, a really long conversation. And it's just beautifully shot. And it's shot in a way where you don't hear both sides of the conversation at all times. Because one of them is being, like, one of them is standing at, like, the edge of the glass. And so you'll you'll see him say something, but you won't hear him say something. But because everything is translated, it translates it for you. So you still know what's going on. Oh, that is right. And you understand the, the conversation. But like if you spoke Persian, like you probably wouldn't. And you didn't have those those subtitles. You probably wouldn't understand what he was saying. No, you wouldn't. Which is like, I think, so interesting. It's such an interesting choice. Like to like that makes you realize like that someone had to watch the movie and like be like, should we subtitle that or should we not? And then someone subtitled it. I think it's so interesting. Like, he does... I mean, it's not like... I don't know if that's, like, a totally conscious thought that he had while making it, but, like, his movies are littered with ideas like that. I think it's the ambiguity of it. I, I'm not sure. And he, the seminary guy doesn't <laughs> want to do it. I, that's my problem. I think it's the ambiguity of the whole damn movie that just doesn't do it for me. Well, he's just a guy who's, like, walking around and, like, everybody's like, you know, that's not chill <laughs> what you're doing right now. You're coming at me with a lot of negative vibes. When is this in Iran's history? Is something big going on at this point? So it's in 97 when I think the, I think the movie is contemporary. I think it takes place. The year it takes place. There was a massive earthquake in 1991. Also, there was the revolution in the 80s had happened, obviously. A decade prior. Oh my God, my computer. What are you doing? And... I think this is just a time of, like, cultural flux. Like I said, the earthquake was a really bad thing that happened in the early 90s. Curse Time actually made a movie about it in the very similar vein of this movie. So, Ben, if you didn't like A Taste of Cherry, I am not going to recommend to you Life and Nothing More. I, of course, appreciate you Life and Nothing More. You said I would like Close Up, though. You said you I would You would like... love Close Up. You I think, think so? Like close up. Yeah. I think so. Okay. I still stand by I still think. I would still recommend to you. You said it last week. I remember you saying that. And I was like, well, after I'd watched the taste of cherry, I was listening to that part of the edit. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to bring that up this week and see if that's what he still thinks. Because I think close up is such an interesting concept cinematically. I think it would at least get you on that because there's a lot of really slow takes in it, which I'm not sure you're going to resonate with. But I think the idea like much like with certified copy, the main idea of the movie is so interesting. I think you would get a kick out of the concept of it this just doesn't work for me dude i mean i won't say that it's all bad in a lot of ways i think the stuff with the old man for the third kind of passenger is very interesting the taxidermist who's like pretty much who they have like i think the longest philosophical disagreement where yeah he's like why would you give up on like just like the small joys that life can give you like like he just fundamentally doesn't understand the concept of suicide like why you would even do it and he has what i think is the most beautiful line which is why would you give up the taste of cherry which is a line that i think is like so powerful and has like stopped me in my like thoughts ever since i've seen this movie yeah it just it just didn't resonate with me man i'm sorry understandable different strokes for different folks he says so the main guy mr body says that he revealed he wanted to commit suicide a long time ago but chose to live after failing his attempt and he tasted mulberries which are like, like a type of cherry 
the taxidermist says that if he finds him dead, he will throw dirt on him. But if he doesn't, then he will, you know, help him out of the grave. Essentially, that's what the the inclination is. Well, that's um, nice of him. Yeah, and the movie basically it's not too dissimilar from like someone in love. It's basically just like a bunch of scenes of people talking, which I know to people can be grating. And I coined the term for some early nineties movies where it's like coffee and cigarettes, where it's just people talking about stuff that I don't care about as like proto podcast movies. Cause they're essentially what a podcast would become. <laughs> This I think is like maybe it's maybe it's because it's in a different language. Maybe it's because I have to read it. This feels a little bit more than that. Like there are people philosophically having like a discussion and a disagreement, and everybody in the movie isn't an actor. The main guy would become an actor, and you've seen probably seen him in other movies. He's pretty famous. He's good. I'll give him credit. He's in Zero Dark Thirty and A Most Wanted Man. No, I know exactly who he is in Zero Dark Thirty. I haven't seen a Most Wanted Man, though. So, yeah, I think he's, like, um, I think he's just really good in this. Like, it's kind of crazy how good a person who has never acted before on camera is in this movie. As this just, like, world-weary person who, like, clearly is just, like, tired of living and is trying to convince someone to help him commit suicide in the, like most half-hearted of a shrug type way someone could kill themselves it's like very interesting i think there's debates over whether or not mr body wants to actually kill himself or he's just trying to get someone to talk him out of it and i think the movie kind of purposely leaves it ambiguous that you know you kind of don't know what happens to him and you don't know what he wanted really because the final shot and we should talk about this him in his grave while a thunderstorm happens and he starts crying. Is that what he's doing? It was kind of hard to I th- see. I think he's crying. See, um, it just looks like he's solemnly waiting to me. It could, you know what? That could be it, too. No, I'll say it again. Abbas Kurosami might be the king of the ambiguous ending. He might be. I kind of love it. I gotta say I love it. I love it a lot. I, I, I understand why you like it. This is this is really just kind of your thing, isn't it? He's this big, big old Tyler. Like, this is the most fucking Tyler Beta movie can be. Like, ambiguous. It's about a guy wandering around. <laughs> like, it's like no one does, no, like, nothing happens. They're just talking to each other. Like, you know, it's 95 minutes. It feels like it's three hours long. It's the, it's the perfect Tyler movie <laughs> in many respects. I, I mean, the ending is very, very haunting in its own way. I mean, yeah. And then it and then it cuts to some fourth wall breaking footage of Yeah, the, that was that was very interesting. Well explain that. Why do you think they went with that with the idea of like showing them shoot kind of some of it? So in So I think it's the breaking of the fourth wall. It is letting the film, like the, the people watching the film know that it was a choice to not let them know the outcome and the fate of Mr. Buddy. There's a shot in close up that I think about all the time, essentially like in the first five minutes, it's like the thesis statement of the movie. It is like a fucking minute long shot of a can rolling down a hill, which I know sounds interminable, but like when you realize that it's the filmmaker being like, this is a, 
active choice that someone is making. Both someone made to kick that can, and then we are currently making to, like, follow the can for as long as we are and not cut away from it. And so it's letting the viewer know, hey, this is a movie. There are a billion choices that go into the making of a movie. You have to think about the choices that a movie maker wants to make and why and what they're trying to say with that choice. And it's all sub like subconscious. Like it's all something that you just like, you don't even think about your thinking it. Like, it's just like, it just kind of happens. And you're like, why would they make this choice? And then you think about it and you're like, oh, well, obviously it's because, you know, like why would they make any of the billions of choices in this movie? And then from there, like a tree, you kind of branch off and start thinking about like, why did they make this choice? Why did they cut it this way? Like, and we'll talk about a choice in the next movie that I, I find fascinating. Which it seems to many people could just be a mistake, but to me seems very deliberate. And I think that's kind of the point of the ending with this movie is it's very deliberate that the movie wants you to have this ambiguous ending. It wants you to, you know, debate the outcome. It wants you to debate the point of life and what it means to live and the taste of cherry and like it wants you to like kind of sit with what everybody has said. Like the last guy, he doesn't want to do it. He's not religious. He's just like a taxidermist. He just has like a job. And he doesn't want to do it, but like he is he accepts like he accepts it because he needs the money. But he's the guy at the end of the day that might convince Baddy that he shouldn't kill himself. Yet he's the guy who might fight who might go through with it. Like I think that's such an interesting little choice. Well, I think they go with that because it's to show the idea that maybe there is some decency in humanity and that maybe like this guy who said, like, look, I'm not gonna kill you, but like I will throw the dirt on your body. Like that gives him some hope and comfort knowing that there's someone out there who it's I don't think this movie's about dying. I think this movie's about being remembered is what this movie's about. I think this movie yeah. is like realistically a movie about the concepts of like losing your identity when you go. Like you want to make sure there's at least one person at your funeral and like that person is kind of just standing there as they say the words over you. I, I don't think that's wrong. I, I don't think the taxidermist thinks it's wrong either. Like I think he understands that someone should respectfully bury this person who wants to die. Like mm -hmm. he doesn't think people should get in the way, but he's also like, it's kind of ghoulish to like ask people <laughs> to do this. Like it's kind of like a like a shitty thing that you're doing to people. I just think it's a movie that I feel like I can watch not endlessly, like on repeat, because I think I'd eventually become too bu bummed out to continue. But it's it's I think it's a movie I'm gonna watch throughout my life and have more experience with it more nuance in its ideas and its belief systems. And I think it's a movie that grows on you with each time you watch it. Like I said, the first time I watched it, it really bounced off of me. I watched like an old version that was on the Criterion channel back when it was part of Filmstruck. And it was like the old DVD version that they put out in like the 90s or early 2000s. Yeah, 1991 when they put the, the DVD version out. And so this like when I watched it for this, I had already bought the Blu-ray because I, I was like, oh, I want to rewatch that movie. I've come to really appreciate Abbas Karastami as a director. And I like turned it on and I'm like, oh, this is gorgeous. This is beautiful. And like, I was literally like just mesmerized by how good this movie looks. Yeah, it just I just don't think it can land for me, dude. I think that's one of its biggest problems. I do like it a little more now that we've talked about it. And maybe this is another like in like 12 months, go back and look at and maybe just try to sit with it again. 
Listen, I understand that Karasami, I like I'm not <laughs> I don't believe you're gonna be like a Karasami head like I am. No, no, like, no I no, totally no. understand that there's like just a whole type of like cinephile base that's just n- never gonna be on board with like a 90 minute movie where like nothing happens in it. Totally get that. I personally just I love him. Like he is slowly become one of my guys. And it took a while. It took a while. I really had to work at that. I mean, I guess that just, yeah, I don't know. Real quick, before we talk about what I would pair this with and what would we give it, I want to talk about the 1997 Cannes Film Festival, because I am the one that will bring this up anytime a movie is played in competition. Yes, that includes the movie that we're doing next, even though it doesn't feel like a movie that should have probably played in competition, but whatever. I just want to point out the jury presidents, which are the, the 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 like people on the jury, which we've never done. I was just like looking at it, and I was like, "This is an insane lineup." So you have the jury president from France, Isabelle Adjani. Do you know who that is? No. Who is this? She's in Possession. You would know if you've seen the movie Possession. Oh, We're gonna okay. watch Possession. I, no, I've seen, you showed me Possession. Well, I watched it. You watched Possession? Yeah. Good. Good. What a a great movie. Anyway, that's her. She's the one in possession. Gong Li was also on the jury. (laughs) She was drunk on mojitos (laughs) the whole time from Miami Vice. No, I'm kidding. Marina Servino was on the jury. Paul Oster? No idea. He's a writer, apparently. He's also a film director. What did you direct, sir? What did you direct? Hold on. Nothing, apparently. Apparently, He's more of a writer. Anyway, fuck him. Anyway, and then finally, Tim Burton rounds out the, the United States people. And then also... Of what note, did Tim Burton Mike... go up for? Oh, Tim Burton's just... He's on the jury. He's just... He's oh, just guys that watch and, and vote. And then rounding out the people of note that we've talked about on this podcast, Mike Lee was on the jury. Oh, wild. Isn't that weird? So here's Isn't some of the ironic? movies. Doesn't it make Isn't it that fun? ironic? Here is some of the movies... That were up for contention at the 1997 Cannes Film Festival. I can't wait to point out something that I wanted to beat the taste of cherry now. Continue. (laughs) Assassins by Matthew Kasselvitz. He is the director of Lachine. The Brave by Johnny Depp. The End of Violence by Vim Vinders. A lot of heavy hitters so far. Uh, (laughs) uh, That's a joke. Both those movies are not good. Funny Games by Michael Haneke. The original? The original. I I can already think of something I want there more. Happy Together by Wong Kar Wai. A movie I'll be watching in two weeks. A movie I absolutely love, The Ice Storm by Ang Lee. Ooh, that is a good movie. Fuck, those were up against it. Yeah, ooh. Ice Storm's an underrated movie. That's by by Ang Lee, right? uh, Yeah. Yeah. It was very underrated. Uh, It's also in the Criterion Collection. Here's a movie I think Ben's going to say should have won, which is L.A. Confidential. I like LA Confidential a lot, but I still would have rather had like the Ice Storm or Funny Games over it. Here's a movie I've never heard of, directed by Gary Oldman, called Neil by Mouth. That's supposed to be one of the low key best British comedies of all time. Nil by Mouth. Really? Okay. She's so lovely by Nick Cassavetes. What? Okay, I guess. It's a movie starring, I think that's Sean Penn and John Travolta. Which movie? She's so lovely. I don't know that movie. Anyway. That that, that, um, you know what? You haven't heard me say this. That movie does not exist. That movie does not exist, ladies and gentlemen. Ben has finally said it. 
Shut um, the podcast down. Shut it down. Shut the podcast down. This is, this is an all experiment to get him to say that. The Sweet Hereafter by Anton Magoyan. And the last movie on this list that I've ever heard of by a director I've ever heard of, Welcome to Sarajevo by Michael Winterbottom. And then you have the two, the, the, the co-winners, The Eel by Shoei Imamura and The Taste of Cherry by Abbas Karasami. Gonna say it right now, kind of a weak year. I don't know. I think there were some pretty strong ones in there. Yeah, like The Taste of Cherry, obviously. Well, also L.A. Confidential. I mean, The Ice Storm. Funny, funny games. games. And, uh, funny Games is also, honestly, it's pretty funny. There was also one more in there that you could have had a strong contending five. I think so. It was a pretty, it's a pretty strong year, but I think we've had some heavy hitters of, of con film festival years. Yes, this is not definitely the one of them. What did Roger Ebert say about this movie? Okay, let's go down and see if I can find the Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert, this is one of the minority of negative reviews. He gave the film a one out of four and said, should I read the entire quote or are you just going to edit it down? You you read as much as you want. I understand intellectually what Karastami is doing. I am not impatiently asking for action or incident. What I do feel, however, is that Karastami's style here is an affectation. The subject matter does not make it necessary and it is not befitted by it. If we were to feel sympathy for Body, he misspells his name, by the way, wouldn't it help to know more about him, to know, in fact, anything at all about him? What purpose does it serve to suggest at first he may be homosexual? Not what purpose for the audience, what purpose Bahati himself? Surely he must be aware his intentions being misinterpreted. And why must we see Karasami's camera crew, a tiresome, distancing strategy to remind us we are seeing a movie is there in is there one thing taste of cherry does not need it is such a reminder the film is such a lifeless drone that we experience it only as a movie he added the film to his most hated movies of all time this is a review that irks noted good film critic jonathan rosenbaum so much that he took to the chicago uh, the chicago reader awarded the movie full four stars and then responded to all of ebert's criticism <laughs> which i think is such a dick move i mean is it a dick move or is it like is it like this guy goes you know what this might be my one chance to come at the king. I mean, Rosenbaum and I'm and Ebert have had, you know, they've had disagreements. They've had their, you know, their words against one another. So um, you think this is a dick move on Rosenbaum's part? I don't think it's a dick move on Rosenbaum's part. I think Rosenbaum is, you know, he was a big defender of A Taste of Cherry. He really liked it. And so I think this is him clearly just being like, well, this guy, this guy's fucking wrong. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm going to write about it. It should also be noted that in Rosenbaum's Sight and Sound top 10 poll, he does have a Karasami film. He has The Wind Will Carry Us, which is the movie that Karasami made after A Taste of Cherry. I, I guarantee I I'm going to watch The Wind Carries Us for best of the week <laughs> next week. Probably I'm going to watch something a little more Ben-centric. And well, you might find it in Tyler's. <laughs> Well, hooray for you. I think it's interesting for all, for for everything we give for Ebert, there are moments where he has been right. I mean, if you look at his like best movies of the year list, you can kind of see him become more of a normie over time, which is fine. But there's also moments where he totally just like misunderstands a movie. And I, I understand 
his grievances with it a little bit, but I'm also like, you are reading <laughs> into it a little bit, my guy. Anyway, I understand, but I also vehemently disagree with Ebert's assessment. That is what I'm trying to say. I would pair this movie with another Abbas Karastami movie, because I'm like that. I would pair this with uh, Life and Nothing More, so you can just get three hours of a guy driving aimlessly through Iran. Could you imagine if you talked me into doing both of these back to back? I would be so beaten down by the end of this week. Yeah, I have Talking a feeling. How... I have a feeling the next week I'm about to do, which I'm I'm gonna do a total of ten hours of overtime. I'm gonna be working <sighs> till midnight every night this week. Is not gonna be as long feeling as the taste of cherry was. And uh, what I will say is that if you need to get to sleep one of those nights and you can't, pop on an Abbas Karastami film. That's what they're That's there. Very for. true. They're very good to go to sleep to. And I don't mean that as a dig. He talked about how napping during movies was like one of his favorite things to do and how he, he would appreciate movies that as he would say that movies that make him do that are good. And I agree with him. <laughs> That's an interesting theory. Maybe I will try that with another one of his movies. Maybe I'll try that with The Taste of Cherry. Yeah, just like play it back and just like, okay, I need to go to sleep. Boom, Taste of Cherry. Like I have movies I love that I do that with. Like, um, I mean, 47, I did put on, 45 I, years? Jesus 45 Christ, years? really? I'll turn that on. Just fall asleep. The fucking sleep. movie about the two people in the relationship. Yeah, I'm fucking honk shooing. Oh my god. I mean, I mean, I'll admit I watched Goodfellas the other night, and that's See, just like perfect cold medicine for me. Too much gunfire, I think. No, you turn it down just right. I mean, you seem to think this guy's one of the best. What do you give this? Six stars in the Tokyo Dome, just raining stars. Five stars. Come on. That's fair. I'm going to bump this up from a two to a two and a half. <laughs> you motherfucker. <laughs> Sorry, you're lucky I didn't kick it below. You're lucky it didn't stay at a two. I mean, <laughs> after talking about it, but no, it, it just didn't work for me. <laughs> that might be the sweetest revenge I get all night. That's fine. I just sandbagged for the last hour. That's understandable. I'm going to wake up now and do a, a yeoman's job on the next one. I think you got to say a lot about it, about it. Yeah, no, I think I, I think for episodes where people like me talking about a movie at length about how good it is, then they'll love this one. This isn't something we should be referencing. There's a moment in Family Guy where it becomes a meg episode and Peter just turns to the camera and goes, and he just hands a remote to like like the viewing concept of the audience. He goes, yep, it's going to be a real meg episode. There's the remote. No one would blame you if you tried. That being said, Mark would never reach for that remote. He'd be like, oh, Tyler episode, I'm all in. Because Mark God just loves right. all your choices. Uh, I, you I should have shown him the taste of cherry. I could have broken him. You could have broken him with the taste of cherry, I think. Although, wouldn't it be funny if you did and he was just like, although, this is the best Although it was so funny. You want to hear the funniest moment of this week at work? Yeah. So Tuesday we watched Chunking Express for our Wong Kar Wai movie of the week. And I was like, I walked by him at work and he was just kind of sitting there tagging aimlessly. And I was like, how you doing, buddy? He goes, it's not fair, Ben. All I want is just a girl to go to my place and clean it and then be gone when I'm there. And I was like, I was like, I don't think you saw that movie for the right reasons. And he goes, no, he... man, I just want love. And I was like, oh, I was that's... expecting you to like walk by it. And it's just like the Cantonese version of Dreams. I like max volume. I mean, he was like, he goes, oh, dude, they did it in their language. It said not only that. Do you see that girl? And he goes, yeah, I'm like, yeah, she's singing that right now. And he goes, really? I'm like, yeah, that's Faye Wong. She's a pop star. I want to always be watching Chunking Express. 
That's how good that movie is. I agree. Takes us on to our, our next movie. We're going to pull over, get some gas, and we're going to change cars into a sleek little hot rod. We didn't really talk about that whole movie does take place in a car, guys. Yeah, by it the way. It takes place in a Land Rover. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like the least cinematic car you can imagine. <laughs> it's onto the most cinematic car you can imagine. A 1970s uh, white Dodge Challenger with a 440 engine. And, you know, this next movie is a wild ride that oddly nails both horror and a hangout flick all in one package. Easily the undeserving black sheep of Tarantino's filmography, which may make it the most underrated in several aspects as well. Also ties nicely as a main event to its opening feature called The One and Only that came out in 2007, Grindhouse. This is, of course, the 2007 movie from Quentin Tarantino starring Kurt Russell, Rosario Dawson, Sidney Poitier, Eli Roth, Zoe Bell, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Rose McGowan. And, of course, in a cameo as the bartender Warren, Quentin Tarantino himself. This is 2007's Death Proof. Cheers, Butterfly. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. And I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. Did you hear me, Butterfly? Miles to go before you sleep. Sorry, stuntman Bert. Mike. Mike. She already broke off that dance. Is that true? Did I miss my chance? Do I frighten you? Is it my scar? It's your car. Ah, yeah, I know. Sorry. It's my mom's car. Have you been following us? No, but that's what I love about Austin. It's just so damn small. You've seen us go before? I saw him outside of Guero's. And I saw you outside Guero's, too. You saw my car, I saw your legs. Now, look, I ain't stalking y'all, but I didn't say it wasn't a wolf. So you really weren't following us? I'm not following you, Butterfly. I just got lucky. So? How about that lap dance? Sorry, it was a one-time only offer and she did it earlier this evening at Antone's. No, she didn't. How do you know? I'm good that way. And you look a little too shade. What's too shade? Wounded slightly. Why should I be wounded? Because you expected guys to be pestering you all night, but from your look I can tell nobody pestered you at all. That kind of hurt your feelings a little bit, didn't it? There are few things as fetching as a bruised ego on a beautiful angel. So, how about that lap dance? I think I'm gonna have to give you a rain check. Well, since you'll be leaving in the next couple of days, that rain check will be worthless. 
That's okay. I understand if I make you uncomfortable. You're still a nice girl. And I still like you. But I must warn you of something. You know how people say, you're okay in my book, or in my book that's no good. Well, I actually have a book. And everybody I ever meet goes in this book. And now I've met you and you're going in the book. <laughs> Except I'm afraid I must file you under chicken shit. And what if I did it? Well, I definitely couldn't file you under chicken shit then, now could I? What's your name again? Stuntman Mike. Well, Stuntman Mike. I'm Butterfly. My friend Jungle Julie over here says that jukebox inside is pretty impressive. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Why don't you go get ready for your lap dance? What about kind of cute, kind of hot, kind of sexy, hysterically funny, but not funny looking guy who you could fuck, did you not understand? If I wouldn't have watched There Will Be Blood this week, my favorite thing of the week would have been the movie that I just want to talk about for three minutes because I think you need to... This this movie that we're about to talk about is like the, the band A Tribe Called Quest. You say the whole thing. Planet Terror is a really solid, really solid, like, grindhouse movie. It's a really weird movie. <laughs> it's really fun, though, isn't it? Yeah, I think the problem I have with Planet Terror is that there's too much of a... I mean, the problem I have with both of the Grindhouse movies is I think there's too much of a budget going on in these movies. Both movies should have been shot for under a million. You think that should have been like a rule? That should have been a rule. It should have been like Bugme 95 where you have these rules. And you're able to break them whenever you want to, but they're, they're there for a reason. I really dig the shit out of Death Proof. Like, every time I watch Death Proof, I'm reminded again. I'm like, oh yeah, like... This is kind of low-key and underrated. Like, he doesn't count this among the ten, does he? I don't think he does. And see, it's not fair. He could easily count it amongst the ten by having the two Kill Bills be one movie. Yeah, well... <laughs> Kill Bill, what a movie. What a what a movie, that movie. She says that might be her favorite. Big disagree. <laughs> oh, I know you do, but I mean, like, you gotta, you gotta understand. I mean, like, movie yeah. about, like... Females kicking ass. They love. That's this, true. Love, I don't yeah. know. I think this is a better version. Of oh, oh, she she in loves this ways. too. She was like, she was like, oh, I love this movie. Like when we started it today, and I was like, really? And she goes, oh yeah. She had never seen the uh, the extended cut, which we watched the two scenes from. Okay, so what are the two scenes from the extended cut? I accidentally watched the extended cut. Well, you know what? We'll get to them. This movie is part two of this thing called Grindhouse, which was in two thousand seven. Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino said we are going to put out two movies together as a double feature that are like movies that are like odes to like nostalgia of like 70s, like Grindhouse cinema. Grindhouse was like exploitation movies, things like that. And that's what these two movies were. The first one was okay. Planet Terror. It's a zombie movie. It's really good. So Grindhouse is a lot of things. It is exploitation. They're very specifically taking from like exploitation and action cinema. That was like kind of low budget, kind of like the original Gone in 60 Seconds or uh, Vanishing Point is like a real flashpoint for this movie. A couple others. 
I think Planet Terror is much more in the vein of like regional horror and action movies that existed in the late 60s and early 70s, specifically like in Texas, because both movies take place in Texas in the same town, I believe. I think there's crossover between characters, correct? Well, they actually I was going to say this last night. This is something I noticed in watching. By the way, can we can we say this too? The fake trailers in these movies are just mm-hmm. chef's kiss amazing. There's one that's racist, but you know, it's it's emulating movies that were also very racist. So Is that werewolf women? Yep. Yeah. Well, Although I mean, that it's a very funny joke, I think. Like I don't know. I kinda love it and I kinda hate it at the same time. I do a impression of Udo Kier, which she does not like. Which you're maybe one of the only people on the planet who understands why that's funny. <laughs> The the impression I essentially do is essentially I'll just put my hand on her skin. I'll go, your skin is so beautiful, even the imperfections. And she's just like, I hate that voice because all I'm just doing is pulling from the like 12 seconds of dialogue he has from Werewolf Woman. The SS, he goes, you're failure, Bowman. It'll be your demise. That fucking trailer is amazing. Like, I think Thanksgiving is amazing. That's the best thing Eli Roth has ever done. <laughs> Low bar, but she, yeah. I mean, it's pretty amazing for like a two minute trailer. You'd probably say don't is the best thing. What's his name has ever done? I, you know, I have made that joke on Twitter before. We'll make it here. Don't is the best thing that Edgar Wright has ever made. Boom, well, baby. I don't even believe that because I like space. I, I remember liking space a lot. Well, that's fair. But don't, I, I would like, I was like, oh, he should actually make don't. It, <laughs> like, that looks like a good movie. I think that might be what One Night in Soho is. I hope. I also think... One of my favorite things is like Hobo with a Shotgun is just like a trailer that people made and it ended up in the Grindhouse like trailer. Like, I think that's so cool. I mean, it's great. And then they end up making the movie, which is like kind of fun. Like, it's a fucking weird movie. I mean, you're not wrong. It's one of those things where you're just kind of blown away that it happened. And it's kind of amazing because like I think Tarantino was like riding pretty high at this point, like he had kind of made a comeback and they were like, yeah, what do you want to do? And like him and Robert Rodriguez kind of threw this idea together and it works too. Like this was so much fun to see in a theater. From what I understand is he came to Robert Rodriguez and he had pretty much the entirety of death proof, like already fixed up. And all Robert Rodriguez suggested was like the name death proof. (laughs) Like he was just like, that should be the name from what I was reading. So what I take from this movie and we'll get into it is I think this movie has a lot to do with Quentin Tarantino's guilt about an incident that happened during the production of Kill Bill. Really? Yeah. He almost murdered Uma Thurman. Oh, I knew about that. And I think, like, the whole thing about, like, the car being death-proof, the whole thing about a dude, a lecherous dude, who says a car is death proof and then murders a blonde woman in it and then has like a foot fetish and is like very creepy towards women which i don't think there's no rumor that tarantino is creepy towards women although i think that is him kind of in his like basically as much as he can hint towards the audience but also and i think this is the most glaring aspect of the film he casts Uma Thurman's stunt double, Zoe Bell, to be in the movie. All of the women who, like, kick ass and kick back are stunt women. One's an actress. So, like, I, I don't know. I, it, like, yeah, I kind of think 
I kind of think. Hmm. I kind of think he's working through some shit. It's a reconciliation movie. Interesting. I think so. Interesting. Well, let's start it there. This movie opens up with kind of two narratives going. And one appears to be these young ladies kind of all just getting together to go like and party because one of their friends is back in town and her name is Butterfly. Is that actually what she goes by or does she have like another name? Her name is Butterfly Arlene, but she goes by Butterfly. Oh, at one point she's asked like, what's her name? And she said Butterfly. So Butterfly is in town and Jungle Julia. By the way, that's how you know. In Planet Terror, you hear someone turn off a radio and you hear, uh, we send this one out to Jungle Julia with all our love. So you know that Planet Terror takes place after the events of this. Well, you see the doctor for Planet Terror in... That's true, too. That's true, too. And she's not. Well, man, when we get to that scene where fucking John Voight, who is in the movie for five seconds and disappears. I'm sorry. sorry. John, John Voight? Is it not John Voight? In which moment? In Death Proof. No, no. Who do you think John Voight is playing? Is he is he playing an actor? What's happening here? No, no. What what are you talking about? John Voight is not in Death Proof. John Voight isn't in Death Proof? Who do you think John Voight is, first of all? Let's let's start with that part. He plays you think the jo- fucking sheriff after... Dude, that's Michael, that's Michael Parks. Have you had a... Str- is that Michael Parks? That's Michael Parks. I for sure thought that was John Voight. Yeah, that's Michael Parks, dude. <laughs> no I, I, thought, I honestly thought you were just fucking gaslighting me for the fun of it just now. I was like, what is happening? Like, John Voight is not in that movie. Yeah, that's Michael Parks. That's the whole reusing him as Earl McGraw. Get the fuck out of here. No. Oh, my God. That is Michael Parks. Yeah, he's amazing in that movie. That's him just re-pulling his character from, from Dust Till Dawn. Is he, does he fucking look like John Voight or something? Like, why did I he's think that was big John ca- He's wearing a big cowboy hat. I don't know why you got John Voight. I mean, sometimes people's brain synapses just fire the wrong name out. I, like, was, like, for sure that that's John Voight. <laughs> like... Sorry, kid. So Butterfly is in town, and her friend Jungle Julia and Shanna, not Shauna, Shanna, uh, not Shauna, are, are all out partying. And the other story you see during these opening credits is just a car speeding towards somewhere. And I'll say this. They play that car for the longest time like the shark. Yeah. It's, 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 it's like he's re- he really knows what he's doing with this movie. There was a moment I did the Leo stands up and points of TV moment today with this movie. That would be that was me snapping my fingers doing the Leo thing. Yeah. So these girls are out and they're partying and they get to this one bar called Texas. What was it? You would think that I because I just watched this movie today that I would know. Sadly, it does not say. Well, they get to this. Okay, so they get to this bar and they're hanging out and bar kind of just filled with all different types of people, including Rose McGowan's there. But it's mostly about these girls just kind of hanging out. And the movie is like weirdly a hangout movie. But then all of a sudden, like one of the girls who's the main girl, Butterfly, who that's what I love, too, is they only make Butterfly the only one who's kind of aware of what's going on. Yeah, she's like noticed the car. Well, no, by the way, that's the most brilliant part. That's the most brilliant shot in some ways of the movie is there's a moment where Tarantino's like hanging up the phone because Tarantino plays the bartender of this place, Warren. And what is the drink that they drink? Chartreuse. It's the alcohol that tastes so good they named a color after it. Yep. 
he almost breaks when he says that line too because it's so stupid but there's a moment where he hangs up the phone and he goes hey punky turn on one of the the breakers that i forgot to turn on the lights outside and they flip on the light the light comes on and it's right over this car and like it's raining outside and dude like that car is as scary as like seeing any serial killer on the lawn in the dark do you think that forces stuntman mike to come inside no, he's already inside at that point. Oh, he's already inside. Remember, he's point. eating the nachos, and that's where like the two guys are sitting there right. talking. Right. Yeah, and <sighs> he's he's been there the whole time. You can tell he's a villain as soon as he starts eating the nachos. You're like, I don't like that guy. Well, he eats nachos is unsettling. Scott, <laughs> the scar down his face don't help nothing either. And... No, it's mostly the way he eats eats nachos. Yeah, well, that's part of it. <laughs> that's the thing I have the most problem with here in this movie. It's that driving on the wrong side of the road. Drive without your lights on, I think, is really, really problematic. Icy hot, don't like it. I did notice something, speaking of jackets in this movie, or when we get to it. So he kind of, like, the movie's just, like, hanging out at this bar. for This movie's two parts. That's the thing you have to understand. There's one set of girls and another set of girls. Like, that's mm-hmm. the thing. There's girl group A, girl group B. And, and the movie he... does a trick that I think is really neat. Oh, absolutely. And Butterfly's friend, Jungle Julia, who is a radio DJ said that if this per- if a person came up to Butterfly while they were out on the town that night and told her a poem, that she had to give him a lap dance. And I'll also say this, had to buy a drink. Hold on. Also, also, had, also had, to buy had to buy her a drink and do this. She would do it. And it's a way to scam drinks out of guys for the evening, essentially. And, like, she might do it if she met, like, a good-looking guy. But Stuntman Mike comes up to her. And Stuntman Mike, guys, make no mistake, is played by Kurt Russell. And I'll say this. The best scene of this movie is the scene where Stuntman Mike sits down and offers her a drink. Like, if you've ever wanted to see what Little Red Riding Hood and the Big Bad Wolf looks like on film, this is it personified. It's a good thing. It's it's incredible. I think I think it's one of Kurt Russell's most like beautiful moments. The scene, the moment he says he goes, there are a few things more beautiful than a bruised ego on a beautiful angel. You're just like, oh, man, this guy's good. Like, you know, he's the bad guy. But, like, you don't care. He's, like, he's reached a level where you're just, like, oh, Caruso's never really got to play a bad guy before, and he's quite good at it if you let him do it. Well, I mean, it was, what, this and uh, that second Guardians of the Galaxy movies, you know, real neck and neck. He's good in that movie, first of all. Don't don't make fun. I like that he's movie. He's good in that movie. He's good in that movie. Mm-hmm. You just want to take a cheap jab. I'm Did I take saying, any cheap jabs at uh, Taste of Cherry? Just saying, it's not, it's not, only, it's not as good as, uh, it's not as good as Death Proof. That's all I'm saying. Well, no, I mean, not at all. <laughs> Death Proof is like a Quentin Tarantino movie. Very few movies are better than a Quentin Tarantino. Even to Quentin Tarantino's worst movie is better. And I'm not saying this is his worst movie. Even his least movie is better than some people's best movie. Like he's just making movies on a different level. And this is feels like a movie where he's not even like he's not even like working at his full power. You know what? Some would say they wish he worked at something like this all the time. I think it would make him a more interesting filmmaker. And this is the scene I'm talking about. She, He essentially kind of nags her into doing this lap dance. And that's the scene they cut from the original version, which is, and they did this, this was a grindhouse thing. They, they have two scenes in both movies where there's just a piece of film missing. Oh, missing reel. Yeah. Missing reel. And the first one is the lap dance in grindhouse. There's two in, in, in death proof. There's only one in, in planet terror. And interesting. I mean, the lap dance is fine. I don't I don't think it's anything to write home about. The movie's probably better without it, honestly. It honestly works better because it's funny. It's a good joke that you never get to see it. Yeah. Like, that's why it works as the deleted scene. 
I, I watching this movie. I, I flipped this on the the TV to watch the first half of this movie, and I watched like the second half mostly on my phone, which is not a way I would want people to watch most movies. But it was the only way I was going to be able to fit this in time to talk about it. So you know, we make do. And I was like mesmerized by like the way the movie like cuts, and like you have like these like flickers that the that the film does because it's like clearly like worn down, and you see like the you just see like. Ugh. I don't know. It's like really interesting what they decided to make noticeable because it's supposed to look like an old film, but I'm like, old film looks significantly worse than this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, as someone who's like watched like a really beat up copy of Mean Streets, like, let me tell you, <laughs> there's there way more visible sprocket holes in that than there is in this movie. <laughs> oh, to be sure. They get, leave the bar. And the only reason Stuntman Mike is still there at this point, because they're all just drinking until the end of days. He's not drinking at all. And he's there to offer Pam, who's played by Rose McGowan, a ride. And they walk over to the car and she goes, wow, that's fucking scary. And he says, well, I wanted it to be impressive. And she goes, is it safe? And he goes, it's more than safe. It's 100% death proof. And this is where you get the title of the movie. And you find out that the car he drives, no matter what he does to it, he cannot be harmed in that car because they've made it like a stunt. It's a stunt car, essentially. You can beat the shit uh-huh. out of it, but it's not going to hurt the person in it. It's going to do what you need it to do in terms of a wreck, but the person inside is going to be safe. Yeah. And he puts her in the side of the car that has like a glass box, and it's so brilliantly set up. Like, Brianna was just like, that's how you get murdered. Yeah, well, wait for it. We were sitting there, and she says like, and he gets in the car, and I'll say it, the best moment of that, I think the best shot of this movie, straight up is the shot where he is walking around the car to get in his side and he sees the other girls pull off and you just hear, you hear them yelling and whooping it up and he turns around, looks dead down the camera at you and just kind of smiles and throws his cigarette. And you're just like, cause essentially that's the moment where he says movie's about to start. Like you might want to, you might want to like uh, take that last little bite of popcorn because movie's it about to start. Feels in many ways like a reference. I don't know if it's a knowing nod to this, but there's a movie called maniac. Which, which is like a really grungy and dirty horror movie from the 80s. And there's a moment, and I'm not sure if it was intentional by the filmmakers. Which movie, During sorry? one of... Maniac? Oh, Maniac, you okay. Maniac? You no, know, I haven't, though, actually. Know? It's a movie. It's really upsetting. It's about a guy who goes and murders women. It's a slasher movie. But, like, what if, like, trying to get into the mind of a serial killer, which was, like, really pro- predominant in the 70s, and so... They're trying to do, like... Kind of like a what if, you know, like you're a Ted Bundy type and, you know, Joe Spinell plays like a Ted Bundy type. And there's a moment in that movie during one of the chase sequences. Uh, it's in New York. It's like a nurse. and She's being chased into a bathroom and he's in the bathroom and he's like opening up stalls. And there's like a moment where he looks at the camera and it's just a moment like I haven't been able to get out of my brain. Because it's 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 the movie being like this is what you want like you want him to catch her like you you've been you've been wanting her to escape but you know it's it's Wiley and Coyote you know what I mean like eventually yeah. you want Elmer Fudd to like shoot Daffy Duck and it's like one of the most upsetting things I've so ever you, so you seen. So you think it might be? You think it might be? I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure it was on purpose, but yeah, I kind of think it's like kind of like that, like you're, where you're just like. Yeah, like I'm the bad guy, and like the bad guy catches the girls. Like that's what you want to see, right? Like they want to see that. You want to see this carnage. I think in Maniac, it's a lot more upsetting than than in this movie. But you know, 
I mean, that that definitely could be a so reference to it. I mean, it has one of my favorite moments where she he goes, okay, Pam, which way are we going, right or left? And she goes, right. And he goes, oh, that's a real shame. And she goes, why? And he goes, he goes, well, the thing is, we're both going left. And if you had said left, it would have been fine until you got scared. She goes, but I'm afraid you're going to have to start getting a whole lot more scared now. And he just starts whipping around in this car, throwing her around. And she's like, I'm really sorry, please. If I said anything to offend you, let me out. And he says, Pam, I got to tell you, I lied about something. He goes, this car is 100% death proof. But to get the benefit of it, honey, you really need to be sitting in my seat. Slams on the brakes and just fucking kills Rose McGowan. And that's where this movie, like, the movie really just, like, you're just like, oh, I'm in a different movie all of a sudden. Like, this was kind of a fun, like, movie where I thought I had misinterpreted something. But no, he's he's a bad guy. That's, you know, that's the mo- moment where I was like, mm, I was really starting to feel like he might be uh, thinking about that Uma Thurman thing a lot <laughs> in the making of this movie. What part did she hurt herself? I think it's like a driving stunt in Kill Bill. And it, like, veered off course and into a tree. He was like adamant with her being in the scene specifically and not a stunt woman. And Uma was like, I think a stunt person should do this. And he was like really adamant that Uma Thurman should do it for some fucking reason. And yeah, she ended up like like almost breaking her spine. Good Lord. And so, yeah, I think this movie might be a little bit of him castrating himself for that incident. Are they cool? It feels right. I don't know if they are. That's a shame. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's something that he he thinks about. And I think this movie, it, I, when like the Uma Thurman thing came out, I was one of many people who were like, well, that really puts Death Proof in a whole different light. It really <laughs> like, does. And I think it's um, because of the second part. So after he whacks Pam, he flips his, his little uh, mirror down and he looks at himself in the mirror and he says, got to catch me, my other girlfriends. And there's just pictures of all the women who he was talking to at the bar and he just got the lap dance from. And it's like, oh, he's been stalking these women. This is a peeping Tom sort of movie. Like this is like a serial killer movie. It's just his way of killing is with a car. And I'll it's say a it, slasher. the wreck where he kills all of those women and they show it four times from each of their perspective. One of the best like pieces of like filmmaking Tarantino has ever committed to film. It also makes sense because it makes you realize like, oh, he's making it so that they were like drinking and driving yeah, so that he can get off. But like also, wouldn't you like see the car with like a fucking roll cage and like it's death proof and be like interesting? I mean, I I think I think what's his name says it next because she actually asked me. She said, is there a reason why he's doing this? I said, they're going to tell us. And the next scene we see is Kurt Russell in the bed like at the hospital being talked to by two guys and you see Dr. Block from planet terror come out and not John Voight. No, John Voight. You see John Voight. No, it's not John Voight. You fuck. It's the other guy. I'm pretty sure it's John Voight. Michael Parks. Michael Parks says Dr. Block. I love that Michael Earl McGraw's character has a family in Texas. Like he has extended family, like kids and stuff. And Dr. Block says to him, like he got real lucky. He banged himself up and he says, well, that's fine. Thank you, Dr. Block. She takes off and Earl McGraw and his son, he says, what do you think it is? Bobby goes, honestly, he goes, I think he runs him over and he gets off on it, which he's 100% correct. But he goes, he goes, can you prove it? He goes, well, hell no, I can't prove it. He goes, but thinking about it don't cost nothing. And he goes, I'll tell you this, man, he tries to do it in my state again. He's going to be in trouble. And then the movie just hard cuts to like a completely new set of girls. And then you realize He's going to keep doing it. And this is just the next set. We just saw him get away with it. So I want to talk about that scene because it's my favorite scene of the movie. 
because it's a thing I love when movies do, and mm-hmm. I'm glad Quentin Tarantino pointed it out. It is very deliberately using one hallway that you have access to as if it is more than one hallway. It is my favorite thing that movies do. I don't know why I love it so much. There was a movie I watched when we talked about Alien where I think I talk about um, like them turning down the same hallway like five times and just losing my mind every time they did it. I don't remember it's like this. My favorite thing that movies do. And they go at the beginning of the scene, they go through two doors And then at the end of the scene, they make a right, and then they go through the same two doors again. And I was I was hooting and hollering. I'm I'm glad you were hooting and hollering, as you say. Hooting and hollering, yeah. So the next set of girls are a little, and you know what? We didn't really give enough credit to all the girls. I think the girl who plays Jungle Julia is really good. I think all the girls are really good in the first half. But they're kind of they're kind of there to be sacrificed. You don't know any of their names for a reason. No, Shanna. You become Jungle real... Julia and uh, no, no, Butterfly. No, no, I mean the the actors. You don't. Oh, the actors. The, yeah. the next ones, you know. Yes, it does say Sydney Poitier, and I was like, "Fucking Sydney Poitier!" Is in this? <laughs> like for a second, I was like, "What?" <laughs> and then I was Sydney like, Poitier oh, always like... been a sexually attractive black woman, and I've just never been aware of this fact. <laughs> like, I'll oh, be damned. Like they did that on purpose. Yeah, like I get it. Okay. Well, it's his daughter. It is her. It, it yes, but like. They build it as Sydney Poitier for a reason. Oh, yeah. Because the movie would do that. You know, like a shitty 70s grindhouse movie would do that. So the next set of girls you actually recognize. Three of them you recognize from other movies. And the fourth one, though you may not recognize her now, is on her way to becoming a star. Zoe Bell? Oh, yeah. And the three you recognize are Rosario Dawson, who plays Abernathy. Tracy Thomas, who plays Kim. And Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who plays Lee. I love Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Oh, I know. You and you and Mark. You and Mark are going to have to have a fight over her. I've watched Final Destination 3 so many times. That is not something you want to admit to, buddy. I'm sorry. No, no that's good. I like it. And the three of them are there shooting a movie. And Zoe Bell, their good friend, who, by the way, I love it, that says, and Zoe Bell as herself. <laughs> that's one of the best moments. That's so great. My favorite thing is that Zoe Bell didn't know like how big her part was until she like like saw a mock-up of the poster and then realized that her name was like next to Rosario Dawson's name and she was like, Oh, <laughs> oh I'm <laughs> like, in this oh. movie. Oh, I'm like a big part in this movie. And that's kind of the genius of this movie. He made a movie around a stunt person, like and kind of crafted it beautifully. Like, say what you will, Zoe Bell's not the strongest part of this movie, but she doesn't have to be. When she needs to be the strongest part of this movie, that's when they use it. I will also say that Quentin Tarantino's dialogue is so strange and otherworldly. Like, I think anybody who, like, wants to act could deliver it well. You think so? You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't... I, it's like one of those things where I'm like, can you deliver his lines poorly? Like, I don't think I've ever seen anyone... I mean, he's just you know, a very strong director and he can give very good direction, but I don't think I've ever seen anybody because his lines are so like, they're so just, there's so much wordage there. And I'm like, no one talks like this. No one talks like these people are talking, you know, I couldn't tell you if the line delivery was bad, but like, I I don't know. I don't know. Part of me is like, she's really good in this, but like, could anybody do this? It's very strange because he does say he writes from his perspective every time. Like every character is just him makes sense like i mean it's it's very true like what is your what is your favorite scene in the first and second part of this movie 
I love the scene where like Butterfly is like talking to her new boy thing, and like the whole debate, like no whining. Oh, like, that's that's also extended. I really love that scene. I understand why you would cut that out, because mm-hmm. um, it's like not necessary. And when I was watching it, I was like, "Why the fuck is this in the movie?" But I was like, "That just—it's just a nice little, nice little thing for her." And I just love movies where like two adults talk about like what they want to do in a, like in an intimate moment. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You don't get that in movies. The other scene that was cut out is actually the scene we're going to come up on next. When they pull up to the convenience store and the guy has the Vogue or he has the Italian Prada or the Italian Vogue or whatever. Vogue, yeah. yeah, that whole scene in black and white is completely cut out, which actually I think is a mistake because it makes the character of Stuntman Mike by Kurt Russell a more lecherous character. It does, but like, you, I don't know, you don't need it. It also makes the transition from Grindhouse film into whatever the last half of the film is more harsh and discordant you think if it just goes from them talking about the boyfriends they have to eventually to going straight to the restaurant as opposed to having that in the middle like kind of like makes it a little more so what happens is you know mike gets he gets out of the fucking he gets out of the the the, what what you call it he then it becomes a black and white film which is i think the least interesting part of it he like tries to lick rose mcgowan's toes and then he fucks off and then he takes pictures of them and then it goes into them talking about their boyfriends. At least that's what happened in the version I watched. Without that black and white part, if it just went straight from the grindhouse setup into the more like, so I don't. I think the one thing we haven't talked about this film is it's stylized, and so is Planet Terror, and so are the trailers, very specifically to to the aesthetic of like seventies films, and and specifically movies on film, because Grindhouse was was a backlash against like D like DCP like digital. How do you I, say it? I don't know actually. I'm not. I'm digital, not aware of this. Something production, digital camera production, I think is what it's called, mm-hmm. or digital cinema projection. That's what it is, as opposed to like you know, thirty-five or you know, sixteen millimeter film projection. And I believe Grindhouse was kind of set up as like a like let's get people to go see film on film sort of thing. And they would send the whole three-hour grindhouse block to places, and with the instructions that that they can fuck up the film however they see fit. Essentially, like make cigarette burns, you know, like scratch the film on mm-hmm. the ground, like essentially like beat the film up on. Yeah, I, we got these instructions at our theater, um, which I think is a cool idea, and. Yeah. You know, like, just have, like, the last reel have a giant green line in the middle of it. You know what I mean? Just, like, fuck it up, you know? Make it oh, yeah. make it interesting. And I do think that's intentional because I do think, what, 2007? That's probably the rise of digital cinema projection. Like, that's probably the rise of... We were still doing it on film, but yeah, you're not wrong. It was starting then. Like, I think that's about the start of it. And so I do think this is kind of a, a small reaction to it. And so both films have a lot of, you know, like you see grime, you see dirt, you see like sprocket holes, you see all sorts of stuff. You see like real changes, like deliberately. And so the movie is like intentionally telling you that. And so 
when Death Proof specifically goes from being like this like grindhouse movie where like in the beginning you see the cuts like visibly, <laughs> like you can see what where they're supposed to happen on the film itself to a very clear crystal image you kind of understand that you've exited the world of the exploitation film from the first half of the movie and entered this new one i'll say this too i don't think the four women who died in the first part five women technically deserve to go but you want to root for these ones more if that makes sense i don't know if you root for them more i think the movie allows them to have more agency than the other ones. It's very true, but those other four or five are meant to be just kind of like, oh, this is what he does. And then the other ones are like, well, like, I, we hope these ones are OK, but I guess we'll I see. Think, well, I think what happens is you leave the first movie, you like exit like a slasher movie where everyone's like this fucking flat character that's going to die. And you enter like the you enter like switchblade sisters like you enter like a joe hill movie <laughs> like you go from it's really like true one type of exploitation movie into a different bigger exploitation movie it's very very true that is so not not untrue so the four women who are now alive who are the second part of the story are in town and they're all just kind of like hanging out because they've got the time off together and zoe bell poses this idea to drive this 1970 white dodge challenger with a 440 engine and it's because it's based off of a movie you and I have talked about, Vanishing Point. Mm-hmm. Kowalski from Vanishing Point. Mate, it's a fucking classic. And Kowalski, and they want to drive it, and they find it, and the guy who is owns it is one of Adam Sandler's friends. And he comes out, and I'll, I'll say it, not great Rosario Dawson leaving Mary Elizabeth Winstead there to hang out with him as collateral. I would say that that is bad. Yeah. I did turn to her. I was like, can we meet two of these three girls for doing this? She goes, it's not a great look, is it? I go, no, it's really not. And they get in the car and they do it. And Zoe Bell's character tells Kim's character, I, the reason I wanted to drive this car is because I want to play ship's mast. Kim does not like this idea. None of us know what ship's mast is. But it turns out ship's mast is you take two belts and you tie them to the doors of the front of a car and you hold on to those belts and ride on the front with your back like in front of the windshield while someone drives very fast. Yeah, like a ship's mast. Yeah, that, that sounds terrible and sounds terrifying. No, no, I can get it. You you can do it. No, I wouldn't do it. I just, no. I just, I just, and I they're it. doing this and they're having a good time, the three of them, because they want to do it on the Dodge Challenger because that's the vanishing point car. And fucking stuntman Mike shows him and just starts fucking with him. And this is where the movie really like, I think, I think the last 30 minutes of this movie are maybe some of the best like action filmmaking I've ever seen. It's cool. It's like really well done. Also, shout out to Sally Minky. Good editor. Very Was good. Was this editor. her final one? I think it's her final film with Tarantino. She might've done. I think she, I think she, ooh, she might've done Inglorious Bastards. She did. She, she got, she got she through does... Inglorious Bastards. Okay, because I think she dies. She uh, she passes away in two thousand ten. Yes, September twenty seventh, age of fifty six. It really God is. Man. She's an amazing editor. She's the reason some of his stuff works as well as it does. And I think you could argue maybe like the two westerns are just a little heavy in that way because they don't have her. Even Mulholland Falls, which is like not a good movie, very good editing. <laughs> so. There he's fucking with him and she's on the hood and they're just 
blasting into each other. They take him from being a guy where it's like, oh, he's kind of like creepy and messed up to just a full-blown bastard by the end of this movie. Just a motherfucker. (laughs) You like it hard, bitch? And he's just driving into him. I didn't get that the first time. Yeah, he does. They, they they both. So when he, yeah, when he's he's making, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, cool. cool, 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 cool. I was like, for some reason, I was just in my head, just like, why is she being so sexual? And then I was like, right, right, because he was doing it the entire time. I mean, dude, did you do you know that there's a moment? Do you remember when he flies through the sign? Like the drive-thru sign? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know that at that moment, Zoe Bell is screaming at him, what's your sign? And he yells out cancer and then just goes through that sign for some reason? That's fucking hilarious. I'm sorry. That's so funny. It's right. It, you're just like, you're just like, why? How did that get? Because you know Tarantino wrote that. Yeah. So they get thrown, like she's on the front of the thing and they eventually spin out and she goes flying, and the guy, Stuntman Mike, says, Ladies, thanks so much. That was great. Because I think Earl McGraw said it. I think this guy can't shoot his goo unless essentially just, like, crashing into people who are hot women. And Kim pulls her gun and shoots him. He takes off, and, like, they're just sitting there because, like, Zoe Bell flew off the car. And they're just staring, like, into this, like, patch of bushes and shit where she should be. And it's the funniest moment in the movie where she just pops up, and you'll hear the clip here. And she goes, I'm okay. Oh, shit! God damn it! Oh, you fucking did it. It's so cute. It's like literally something that I remembered from watching the movie as a kid all those years ago. It was oh, just her popping up and you're like, I'm okay. Yeah, and it's like, and I'll say it too. It's once again, it's a testament to him as a storyteller. The moment in the restaurant where they're all sitting around talking, Rosario Dawson relays this story to them about zoe almost having her fall somewhere and they said well what happened and they go well later on zoe fell in the exact place she almost made me fall and they go well what happened zoe and she goes nothing zoe's fine zoe has amazing physical prowess and that's the joke of the movie is zoe's a stunt woman like of course she is she's she's a fucking stunt woman she would be fine and she lands fine and they say are you okay zoe and she goes i'm gonna have a hell of a bruise on my bum but that's about it and she said, what happened to the maniac? And they go, he ran off. And she goes, do you guys want to go get him? And then they just start chasing him back. And it's so fucking funny. But yes, to answer your question, Kim has penis envy. Okay. You stop that. Stop what? That's not what I... No, I'm... I, I don't... I don't know. I don't love the movie being like... Guns are cool. I think... I'm, I think we have aged past that a little bit. I mean, I do appreciate I do, I do appreciate her logic. Her logic is, if I ever get rich and famous, I'll hire me someone to do it. But until then, it's Wild West motherfuckers, which I'm like, you know what? I don't disagree with her. Whatever. It makes sense. I guess. So they kind of fucking crash into him. I love how much of a bitch he is, too, on the inside. He's such a little punk bitch. He is. Once he gets shot, it's so funny. Oh, it is. And they fucking crash into him and they just start like kicking the shit out of him. It just becomes a chase movie where they're banging into him. And, you know, it's a real this is the maybe the largest Jennifer Jason Lee leaving her locker room open moment we've ever had on the show. How do they explain this to the guy after they bring his car back? I also had that moment. I was like, so how does that look? Does he exchange insurances with uh, Stuntman Mike? He can't. He's Stuntman Mike's dead. So I don't know if his insurance is going to alert. Spoiler alert to that. So they keep running him down and they eventually wreck him off the road and his car flips. And 
like they pull him out of it and the three of them just proceed to beat the shit out of each other, which is this comes to the thing I never noticed in this movie until now. Kim's jacket that she's wearing says stunt guild. She's a stunt woman. I know it's great. Like it's such a funny, it's such a funny moment. And the three of these women proceed to beat the shit out of making it actually look pretty damn good. Like Rosario Dawson actually like looks like she knows what she's doing in that moment. Rosario Dawson's really good in this movie. They're all really good in this movie. I stumbled upon the fact that Quentin Tarantino apparently directed an, a two part episode of CSI. You didn't and know that? I'm kind of jawed. Yeah, I'm like very confused. Well, he wrote it too. Interesting. Yeah. You didn't know that? That was oh, when he was boy. at the height of his power. He did the story by. Did he? Does he like CSI? I mean, he might. I'm sure he has some respect for it. I mean, he's an artist. He has respect for everything. I'm sure in some ways. They beat his bitch ass to death, and it just ends on a big the end. And I mean, that's the movie. That's Death Proof. Yeah, I have a question for you. This yeah, is, this is. I'm gonna knock this back towards you. What's your favorite movie gag related to the first part of the first half of Death Proof? Give me an example of one of the gags. My favorite. I'll just go with my favorite. And this, this will, um, is when the title's about to come up. And you see for a second, you see for a second, like a different title. I think it's like Thunder something. And then a black card pops up over it that just just says Death Proof. proof. (laughs) I love that because you still, you see that happen all the time when you watch like an old movie where you'll see like a different title card or like a different name. And I think it's really interesting when that happens. I love when it's the three of them yelling at the last billboard. And then they're just gone. All it's a it's a beautiful two hander. Actually, it's great because it just hard cuts to them being gone, and you're like, oh, that's great. Like part of the film was missing, but then you just see stuntman Mike driving behind them, and it's a real like shark following someone in the water moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that might be my favorite. What is your favorite scene in the second part? Um, I, the whole chase. I think like the first half of that chase before he gets shot. I think it's really good. It is <laughs> when Zoe Bell's like, I'm sorry, I called you black bitch. <laughs> She's like, it's OK. Yeah, I know. It's just so cute. It's like, I want to atone for that before I go flying, maybe. I mean, I think moment of the movie is I'm OK. Like, just I'm just, OK. Yeah. She's so little and cute, too. What guys, you might not realize that she also shows up in Django uh, pretty much every movie after this, actually, I think. She pops up. I think her most substantial role after this is in. I mean, the one that's like lampshaded the most is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She's so funny in that moment with Brad Pitt. She's in it for a very long time. And once again with Kurt Russell. Yeah. Dude, can we say this too? This is a top five Kurt Russell performance. Probably. He's, he's so good. This is like if Snake Plissken had gone the opposite way. She doesn't appear in Inglorious Bastards, but she does appear in. She's in Django. She's five horse. She's six horse Judy in The Hateful Eight, and she's in Django uncredited. I know she is. Oh my God. She does a bunch of voices in Fallout New Vegas. Oh, there you go. She does Diane's voice. Aw. <laughs> Don't you remember the scene where Diane jumped out from all the zombies and she's like, "I'm okay." So. <laughs> Yeah, the movie kind of ends there and like it's it's really just it's a fun movie and it's it's just an hour and 40 minutes of just kind of just sheer fun. Like I said, it nails both horror and hangout really well. Mm hmm. And what would you pair with this? Well, I know that Planet Terror is right there. Yeah. And it's for the taking, but I'm not going to do that. 
I'm gonna play, I'm gonna pair it with Vanishing Point. No, that's fair. That's a that's a nice like little film class right there for them. I think Vanishing Point is also a hangout movie. <laughs> it's a very sad hangout movie, sir. Very sad hangout movie. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna double down on what I said a couple weeks ago or last week for you. That's nice. Get help. <laughs> okay, Vanishing Point. Yeah, I can appreciate that. And yeah. what would you give this? I give this a solid four out of five. I give this four and a quarter myself. Yeah, this is this is a fun movie. It's good. And it's got some good stuff in it. It's got some really interesting performances. Natasha Leone, market corrected, the girl who gives him the lap dance. They are like the same person. Are they? Look at the way she talks, walks, and acts, like in that performance. Natasha Leone? Natasha Leone market corrected that girl. Like that girl had one movie and it was this, and then just never seemed to come back because it seems like they were built for the same parts. I mean, Natasha Leone is is she existed before the Vanessa. That's what I'm saying. I just think this girl like was on her corner for like a brief time. And then Natasha Leone was like, no, no, this is where I stay. I I truly, I don't, I I don't under, no, I just, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't agree with you. That's fair. That's fair. (laughs) Like I, Natasha Leone is like a completely different kettle of fish. No, same, same voice, same attitude. It's, it's all in the delivery. No, (laughs) Like, like right, we're not we're not gonna we're not gonna argue about this. Like Natasha, Natasha Leone is Natasha like, Leone, same person. I guess if this this woman was like very queer, you know, I'm I'm just gonna say this. Vanessa Ferlito and uh, Natasha Leone, same people. You've never seen them in the same. They're not the, I, You're just you're just lumping Italians together. That's all you're doing. Yeah, yeah, I am. I am. It's not a good thing. I just realized too. No, but that all being said. Vanessa Ferlito, same person as Natasha Leone. That takes us on to next week, and it's episode 109. It is episode 109. What does that mean? It's a number. It's another nine, uh, which means we. It's one of us. Not gonna name names, but one of us. Oh, you. Pick two movies from the past that we did on the Mount Rushmore uh, to do again. And I don't have my phone on me, so I can't look at the list. So I just got to kind of go from memory, which is not good for Ben. <laughs> no, it's really not, actually. Because <laughs> I just got to be something or, I or prefer do Or do you want to spin the wheel and potentially pick one that I've, I've thrown together? Or do you want to just be hateful? I, well, I know I want to pick one. <laughs> <laughs> go um, ahead. I really want to pick Miami Vice. Okay. And the other one I was going to pick is The Last Temptation of Christ, but those don't work in any level. No, so they do. If... They're both nine movies. I mean, you don't have to explain yourself. I guess. But, like, what are we... That's the... What's the pairing here, Ben? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's not on me, man. They're nine movies. I mean, that's, that's, that's the only pairing you need. You have the license right there. They both were on someone's list. Both on my list of them, just now realizing. Yes, that's true. They were both on your list, and <laughs> that means they made it into the Nine Club, which means they eventually get to get talked about. I don't know. I feel like I, I, I'll, um, as someone who likes The Last Temptation of Christ, I don't know. You know what? No, not now. What were some other movies on this list? Shaft, Batman Begins, Inception. Meeks cut off First Cow, Fargo, The Hateful Eight, Gangs of New York, Taxi Driver, Barton Fink, The Insider, Zero Dark Thirty, Old Joy, Inside Lewin Davis. So two movies from the nines, Tyler. What are we looking at? We're looking at John Singleton's 2000 uh, Shaft. What could you call 
Ooh. The only thing separating um, you is me and Tom, baby. <laughs> and we're going to follow that up with another crime film. We're going to from 2006, Michael Mann's Maligned Miami Vice. The director. Asterisk, the director's cut, because I'm not watching any other version of that goddamn movie. Once you first come in the game, they try to play you. Then they pump a couple of hips. That's how they wave to you. I swear to God, there had to have been an inside deal between Jay-Z, Linkin Park, and Michael Mando. Like, it's going to be our summer, boys. The way that movie opens with just that really just blown out version of that song. It's fucking just so good. And yeah, we'll, Immediately we'll, into it. We'll talk about it. It's actually going to be a good pairing next week. I'm actually very excited for that. So next week, 2000 Shaft and 2006's Miami Vice. Two movies that are just... High octane action. Actually, you know what? These are perfect. I wanted feel good movies, but then we forgot it was nine. So you know what? These are perfect, actually. Yeah, Thank a little bit, a little bit, a little bit of, of Christ. A little bit. Of, I almost picked the last temptation of Christ. I'm, I'm stave of execution on the last temptation of Christ. It's coming. Great. <laughs> That's so great. I'm so happy for all of us. Christ is gonna be tempted. I hope we can Possibly do one of these for the last time. <laughs> when is Easter? Easter's over, isn't it? Easter is over. Oh, that's a shame. Maybe we can get one near the Christmas holiday and you can do that. That doesn't really work, does it? Oh, he's coming. He's, 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 he's pissed off. So for next week, those guys, and you can follow all of our antics at TWGTF pod on Twitter. You can follow me at ET critic for the empty theater critic. You can follow us on Instagram at TWGTF pod. See what scene of death proof I watched today that I put up. And you guys can follow us at all those good places. Tyler, is there any boy that can follow you? They can follow me into an abandoned amusement park where I'll be pestered by some kids and their Doberman. And for TWGTF, two white guys talking film, I've of course been your host, Ben. And I'm Abernathy. And remember, guys, if you're come by our uh, video store out on Tobacco Road where people are selling white Dodge Challengers from 1970 with a 440 engine and you see our video box and there's a guy with an icy hot jacket. Well, that's just stuntman Bob, stuntman Mike's brother. He's completely well adjusted. He's played by Danny DeVito. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. It's my mom's car. Talking, 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 talking
No, no, I don't know. You said it. How do I know? You said I'm funny. How the fuck am I funny? What the fuck is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Have you seen the new Martin Scorsese thing where he gave like a little intro for HBO because they now got that movie back, I guess? Oh, good fellas. Yeah, because I guess it was like on some other streaming service, but it's like returned to like Warner Brothers and HBO now. Oh, what he said. So he just um, did you know the how am I funny scene is based on a real event? Yeah, I did not know that. He like based it off something he saw in a bar. Well, no, Joe Pesci experienced it. Oh, someone I was like someone who is in that scene experienced it for real. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. And they shot it wide because the only two people who knew were Ray Liotta and Joe Pesci. That's smart. And everybody else was like, oh, mine's Scorsese, man. Smart filmmaker. Smart filmmaker. Sorry, stuntman Bert. Mike. A, and a black Dodge Charger, right? A white Dodge Challenger. What's that? What's, what is, uh, what is old, uh, what is old uh, Death Proof Drive? I don't remember what Death Proof Drives. All right, well. Also, I appreciate that you, you like me, are calling him Death Proof. That's his name. Yeah, right? Death. Yeah, it's Kurt I mean, his Death name Proof. is technically, it has like a real name. Yeah, we'll get his to it. Be, his name well, yeah, be I agree. That's one of the problems I have with the movie. He shouldn't have a name. <laughs> hey! <Woo-hoo! laughs> hey! Ladies! That was fun! <laughs> 